All right, so this morning, uh, contentment. I don't think there's going to be anybody in here that, that was like, Rach, read the chapter, totally got it down, I'm good, I'm just here to bless everybody else, right? Ooh, so this, this week was intense, but well needed. So as we're thinking about that, um, looking through some stuff, just thinking about our culture around us, what's pressed in on us all the time, I found a little article that's about marketing that I thought was very helpful as we think about the American society around us. And the article's name is The Ads We Deserve. So... It's by a a gal named Nancy Friedman. She says, once upon a time, the verbs of advertising were need and want. Today, you're more likely to hear a different verb. You deserve Virgin Mobile, intones an echo chamber voice in a recent TV commercial. You deserve new now, shouts a billboard for a housing development in the San Francisco Bay Area. I can attest to that. I actually saw that one when we went out there last year to visit Ron's biological dad and his wife. The most original people deserve the most original vodka, reads a tagline. Weight loss products from the motivational speaker Tony Robbins claim to give you the body you deserve. Of course, that's thin and healthy. A 2012 book from the popular financial writer Suze Orman promises the future you deserve, which of course is rich and happy. Poke around a bit and you'll quickly discover that everyone, kids, young adults, teachers, you deserve the best. More specifically, you deserve love, happiness, a comfortable retirement, or an early one, and eco-friendly clothing. So just like a Saturday Night Live character whose daily affirmation begins, I deserve good things, it seems we all have it coming, and it's all good. How did this happen in our marketing, she goes on. The real story of the rise of deserve has to do with two mass market products, hamburgers and hair dye. And it goes back five decades. Instead of giving us promises or warnings, these ads offered reassurance and encouragement. McDonald's came first in 1971. See if you can finish it. They came out with, you deserve a... Break today. Good job. And they thought, does it work? Oh, it worked. The campaign ran for much of the next 19 years and was named one of the most top ad campaigns of the 20th century. Then L'Oreal's groundbreaking slogan for preference, hair color, because I'm worth it was created in 1973, just two years later after You Deserve a Break Today. L'Oreal has used the slogan continuously for 50 years. 
changing only the pronoun from because I'm worth it to because you're worth it, then because we're worth it. In 1977, L'Oreal appropriated the slogan originally intended solely for one brand of hair color as the tagline for the entire company. So obviously, my dear ladies, that advertising works. And it works because people listen to it. So once the you deserve it slash you're worth it proves successful, other advertisers rush to copy the formula. So now as we just drive around or scroll around or just walk around, you will hear things like, because you deserve nothing but the best, or treat yourself with the best. You deserve it. Create an exceptional life because you deserve the best. Life is too short to settle. You deserve the best. Enjoy the lavish life because you deserve the best. Taking care of yourself starts with choosing the best. You deserve premium quality, always, because you deserve the highest standard of living. Don't settle for less because you deserve the best. And live your best life. You deserve nothing less. That's just 10 of the 100 slogans that were listed, all claiming we deserve, we deserve, we deserve. So how do these marketing slogans line up with scripture? Do we even see them as unbiblical? Or do we drink them in thinking, eh, they're just neutral morally? We hear or read these slogans constantly around us. Are we subtly letting them color the way we think? As Yvonne taught us last week, are we able to think and discern good from evil? What about our desires? Do we look at others around us and we, we don't necessarily want to take away what they have. We just want it, too. You know, others seem to have more thoughtful husbands that remember to bring them flowers on Valentine's Day. Or they have more obedient children. Or they just have a better nose, a nicer body shape or size, a prettier house, or a more stylish wardrobe. Do we even recognize those thoughts as discontentment with what God has chosen for our lives? Or are we allowing society's viewpoint to strip away the thankfulness with which we should constantly, should constantly be on our tongues? Our very breath should be gratitude to our Savior, and yet often our gratitude is soured because we have areas of life that aren't quite what we want them to be. We allow just little pockets and corners of discontentment in our hearts. And slowly that discontentment breeds and seeps and spreads throughout our hearts until it's poisoned our viewpoint of our lives and others around us. The very things that we think will bring us happiness and pleasure become a self-built prison of longings. And it's suffocating our growth in our trust for our Lord's providential work in our lives. 
But the Apostle Paul has given us the key to unlocking that self-built prison, the key of contentment. So in studying for this lesson, I had the privilege last week of reading the book, The Art of Divine uh, Contentment, not Covenant, The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. So um, I do want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of what I will be sharing with you is what I learned from him. So I'll be quoting from him and even the thought patterns are not my own. So Thomas Watson's just a very wise man. So he was a Puritan, lived back in the 1600s in England. Um, his book, I love that he, he calls it the art of divine contentment. So it's like painting a picture. And I will say this book is a beautifully brutal book because you cannot walk away without getting your feet stamped on and stomped on in quite a few ways. And yet it's so helpful to diagnose those areas of discontentment in the dark corners of our heart. So um, he's very just straightforward in his assessment of the scripture and calling people to repentance. But ladies, can we repent of sin that we don't even recognize as sin in our own hearts. So let's sit at Thomas Watson's feet. Who sat at Paul's feet? Who learned from Christ? So this morning, we're going to see the three E's of contentment. You have the education, so I'm saying the letter E. So the three E's of contentment, the education in contentment, the excuses for the lack of contentment, and the expressions of contentment. So we'll be using Philippians 4, 11 through 13 as our jumping off point for our thoughts this morning. So let's go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word, whether it be physical or on your phone, to Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we're just going to read 11 through 13. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, ladies, as we're thinking about this, we need to remind ourselves, where is Paul sitting when he is writing these words in Philippians? He's in prison. The traditional view is that Philippians, along with the other prison epistles, which is Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, were written during Paul's first imprisonment at Rome. So the Philippians had generously supported Paul in the past, and they had also sent a new gift, which is causing the, the letter being written. So they had sent it with Epaphroditus to minister to Paul's needs while he's in prison. Not like our government who takes care of those in jail back then. You were reliant on others to help support you as you were in prison and to care for your needs. 
Now, Epaphroditus had suffered a near-fatal illness, either while he was en route to Rome or shortly after he arrived there. So Paul's sending him back to Philippi with this letter. Now, in spite of Paul's imprisonment, as you're reading through the book of Philippians over and over again, you read, rejoice. The overall tone of the whole book is joyful. So considering where Paul is sitting while writing makes us listen to him just a little bit more. And we can listen to Thomas Watson very carefully as well, since he was also acquainted with great sufferings. He also went to prison in England, and he was also, it was called the Great Ejection. So the government tried to force control over what happened during a church service. There were many, many faithful pastors who stood up and said, no, the government should not be telling us how to run our church services. Only God can tell us. And so they were all ejected, thrown out of their pulpits. So Thomas Watson was Um, one of them. So for over 10 years, he kind of had to just preach wherever he could find. It's called a nonconformist. He wouldn't conform to what the, the government wanted him to do. So definitely was on the move and, um, still wanting to be faithful to the word and to the Lord, but was acquainted with sufferings. So these are not men who just sat on pillows of ease as they encourage us to be content. They were men who had to learn the beautiful art of divine contentment. So number one on your outlines, we're going to talk about the education in contentment. The education in contentment. Drop your eyes down to verse 11. It says, not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So we see here, A, the essential need for education. The essential need for education. So right above 11 in verse 10, Paul was thanking the church in Philippi for the gift that they had sent with Epaphroditus, But to clarify, he's not, you know, hey, thank you for that. Go ahead and send more. He's No, no. He's not hinting for more. He clearly states it's almost a a aside or a parenthesis, but he lays out a profound spiritual lesson. He had experientially learned that he had no need for anything that his heavenly father had not decided for him to have in that moment. So if you notice there the phrase, I have learned. So this was a learned thing. I have in my Bible, I've got that word learned circled because this is something we need to learn. This is an active verb. It means to learn by use and practice, to be in the habit of or accustomed to. Now, For us thinking about it, I have learned. This is as opposed to just increasing in the knowledge of. So um, are we just hearing about the need for contentment? Or are we actually learning contentment by its use and practice? 
Thomas Watson said, it is not enough for Christians to hear their duty, duty meaning what it is they're supposed to do before the Lord. So it's not enough for Christians to hear their duty, but they must learn their duty. It is one thing to hear and another to learn. And he's using that word learn like Paul does by use and practice. It is one thing to eat, And it's another thing to digest. Christians hear much, but it is to be feared, learn little. And isn't that true, ladies? We hear a lot, but we learn so little. It is one thing to taste and chew your food, but in order to get the nutritional value from that, our bodies must digest that food. Both are good and necessary, but... If you're not following through with the learning or the practice, then your spiritual life will become shriveled and starved. So we need both. But what are some of the things that might challenge our learning? Number one on your outlines, it's not valuing what we hear. Not valuing what we hear. I mean, if you think about it, why are we going to practice something that we don't consider precious? We're already crazy busy. Our time is precious to us. So why are we going to spend it on something we don't consider weighty or valuable? And overall, we must consider Christ the most precious pearl of all. We have heard much of Christ, but have we learned Christ. So as we again learn from Mr. Watson, what is learning Christ? Learning Christ, number one, is to learn Christ is to be made like Christ. To be made like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So if we value Christ, if we see these things from his word as weighty and valuable, we will strive to be shaped and molded, not according to what society says we deserve, but according to the loveliness of Christ's character and who he is. Number two, to learn Christ is to believe in Christ. To learn Christ is to believe in Christ. This is saying with the apostle Thomas, this is saying with him, my Lord and my God. Thomas Watson said, We do not only believe God, but in God, which is the actual application of Christ to ourselves. And as it were, the spreading of the sacred medicine of his blood upon our souls. If you have heard much of Christ and yet cannot with a humble attachment say, my Jesus, then be not offended if I tell you, The devil can say his creed as well as you. What is he saying there? The devils believe and tremble. They believe God. They know the realities of God. And yet we believe 
in God. There is a drastic difference. Do we say, my Lord and my God, he is my Savior. He has cleansed me from my sin. And now I believe he has taken that um, punishment for me on the cross. He has clothed me in his righteousness so that when I stand before the Father, he no longer sees my sin, but I am clothed in Christ's righteousness. That is what it is to believe in Christ. Number three, to learn Christ is to love Christ. To love Christ. Matthew twenty two thirty seven, And he, Christ, said to him, a lawyer who's trying to trap him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Here Christ is opening up for us what is the greatest commandment. And yet, have you ever stopped to think? He is Christ. He is God incarnate standing in front of these people. And he is saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And yet they hate him. They are seeking to destroy him by capturing him in his own words. And before we wag our heads at those Pharisees, who are we? But ones that hated him. And yet God, in his goodness, in his mercy, has taught us Christ, has changed our hearts that we want to learn Christ, that we do believe in Christ, and taught us to love Christ and who he is. Amazing love, right, ladies? So these are things we need to value. We need to love. We need to hold dear as precious as we try to learn contentment. These are the things that we need to hold. So sometimes we're not valuing what we hear. We come Sunday after Sunday and we hear good, good sermons. We are well taught. We are blessed women at this church. But how often do we come to hear and yet we're even struggling to focus, right? I mean, we have the pressures of life. We have the, even the inconsequential stuff like, did I remember to turn on the oven to cook the roast before we left the house? Or did I remember to turn off the coffee pot? Things of that nature. Or I wonder if my child is doing okay in their classroom. Instead of valuing, okay, Lord, I really need your help right now because Chris has, has prepared and has your word, and I need your word for my heart, so I need to prepare. Calm my heart, humble my heart, focus my mind so I can value what I'm hearing. Not only do we not, do we struggle, that challenge to our learning, challenge to our practice, we don't value what we hear, but number two, we forget what we hear. And I think probably this point is where we struggle the most. 
Most of us do value. I truly and honestly do think you value. You love the word. That's why you're here this morning. That's why you come on Sundays. You love the word of God. But yet, how often is it do we hear the word of God and we walk away and we forget it? It it is so vitally important that we instantly think of ways to practice what we heard so that way we don't immediately forget it. I love the illustration that Thomas Watson gives as he's helping us think through these things. So when thinking of forgetting what we hear, he says, many Christians are like colanders. Put a colander into water and it is full, but take it out of the water and it all runs out. So while they are hearing a sermon, they remember something, but like the colander out of the water, as soon as they leave the church, all is forgotten. The word must not only fall as dew that wets the leaf, but the word must fall as rain, which soaks to the root of the tree and makes it bear fruit. So we need to soak up that rain of the word so that it becomes part of who we are. It's not just falling through, but we're soaking it in. Now, learning spiritual things, a lot of times does that not go against our, our natural nature, our sinful flesh, our natural selves. He also said, ever since Eve listened to the serpent, we have been deaf. And since she looked on the tree of knowledge, we have been blind. But when God comes to teach, he removes these impediments. So ladies, we have to train ourselves to be able to call to mind the things we've learned in order to put them into practice. Immediately, we need to say, okay, today I am going to practice what I heard by an immediately application. So it, it becomes woven into our everyday lives and then it becomes a habit. And then we will not forget what we have heard. So some of you may know my dad was a uh, band director. So very, so I grew up around music, music, musical instruments. And he was known to say, practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So I think that's a very helpful thought as we're thinking through. We want to learn these things for the purpose of practicing them. We need to practice over and over and over so the truth of God's word becomes permanent to us. So as we look ahead and we say, okay, Rach, I'm on board. I'm tracking with you, but kind of help me out. Okay, contentment. If we're to learn and, you know, society is pressuring me of I deserve this and I deserve that and I... I kind of know sometimes when I'm being discontent, but I'm not so sure other times whether, okay, does that mean I can't want or desire anything? I just have to like blob along and just ignore everything or be a stoic and I'm not going to be emotional at all. No. So what is contentment? Uh, in our chapter, she quoted Jeremiah 
Burroughs, who wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He also, um, and I forgot to write down the name of it, but he went on to write another one about Christian contentment while in prosperity. So, but Jeremiah Burroughs said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So I love that so much. It freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. Just whatever the Lord wants to bring into my life in every condition, I will submit to it and delight in it. Thomas Watson said it was, it is a sweet temper of spirit whereby a Christian carries himself in equal poise in every condition. So we are having self-control as we walk through, no matter which condition we're in, we have a poise about us. He goes on to say, contentment lies within the soul and does not depend on external things. Outward troubles cannot hinder this blessed contentment. It is continually thinking of God's love. When there is a tempest without, there may be music within. A bee may sting through the skin, but it cannot sting to the heart. Outward afflictions cannot sting to a Christian's heart where contentment lies. Thieves may steal our money and food, but not this pearl of contentment unless we're willing to part with it, for it is locked up in the cabinet of the heart. So ladies, as we're thinking through contentment, it is that settledness within you that you trust God is good and what he is doing in my life is for his glory and my good. And we say it over and over and over again. Sometimes we need to say it very, very loudly to ourselves. Again, ladies, are we having those stern talkings with self when we need to? Because our self, it gets out of control, does it not? I know myself does. Where Rachel has to have a stern talk with Rachel, because Rachel's a little out of control. Where you have that internal dialogue, you, you really can do that. And self needs to hear the truth of scripture over and over and over again. You have to keep those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So those stern talkings are needed because our thoughts love to run rampant. They love to just question, but is this really for my good, God? Are you sure? It's easy to say those things, but are you truly considering what you are saying to an all-wise God? That you know better than God? You're questioning his goodness, his wisdom within your life. These are, this is the depth of what we're talking about this morning. We all struggle with contentment, ladies. This, this is not something that I'm like, I think I've conquered. I think we all have it settled. But the depth of the sin of it needs to be brought forward so that 
we can bring our hearts to the point of that cheerful submission to his will. So we've considered that essential need of education, and now Paul lays out two drastically different situations in which contentment is needed. The first being B, contentment in poverty. Contentment in poverty. If you'll look back down at our passage in Philippians 4 at verse 12, Paul is saying, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, Paul had many times throughout his ministry that he could have been tempted to not be content. We're going to just look at a few of them, and I actually want you to go there with me this morning so you can visually see for yourself. Turn in um, your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to kind of flip through 2 Corinthians real quick and just follow Paul's train of thought. Now, he's not saying these things to the Corinthian church for their sympathy. He's laying out an argumentation But within it, we get a glimpse here in Philippians, he's telling us to be content and that he's learned these things. We can learn from these lists. What did Paul go through in order to learn to be content in poverty, those humble needs, suffering need? So look at 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to start in verse 8. It says, we are, this is Paul speaking, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we're going to flip a couple pages because he will lay out some very specifics of what they were suffering. Um, So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. He continues on saying, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished and yet not put to death, as as sorrowful yet rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things." So just that back and forth, even their reputation was being smeared. And then we're going to flip one more time, go to 2 Corinthians 11, and we're going to go to verse 24. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Paul lays out, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night 
and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among, among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, and I love how he put this. It's almost like, besides all those little things, and look what he says is pressure. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And yet, ladies, after all this he has listed for us, he also speaks of a physical weakness and then at the end of all, he ends with flip to 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So beautiful. So here's Paul speaking and he says, so he's just listed all these many things he's walked through, all these sufferings, these hardships. And now he has a physical ailment that he has asked the Lord to take away from him. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he, that's the Lord, has said to me, that's Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, I think that deserves an underline, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ladies, how profound. Like I had never read through that list of his sufferings and then connected it to chapter 12 like that. And that was just honestly awe-inspiring of Christ's work in Paul that he could list all those things. And yet he says, but God's grace is sufficient for me and I'm well content even with weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. This is so helpful as we walk through the different things of life. And I don't think any of us are, are in danger of cold and exposure, of true hunger and thirst, of these different things. We've not been imprisoned for Christ's sake yet. We've not walked through these things. And yet here is Paul. And remember, Paul considers himself the chief of what? Sinners. He doesn't consider himself this grandiose man and we just put him on that high shelf and, you know, Paul was awesome like that, but we'll never get there. No, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And yet it was Christ's grace that was sufficient for him. That brings a whole new light when we talk about contentment, and poverty. 
you know, he, he says he's, he's well content, even in his weaknesses, for the purpose of bringing Christ glory to display Christ's power. Because he says, I'm so weak, everyone will know this has got to be Christ's power in me displayed. And that's amazing. Ladies, is that what we're striving after? Even when we're asking, and, and Paul himself did ask, Lord, please take this physical ailment away from me. And yet, he was well content if the purpose was Christ's sake, Christ's glory. Are we willing to walk through those things? Are we willing to walk through poverty, humble means, suffering need, whatever that need may be, so that we can bring Christ glory. Over and over again, Thomas Watson talks about, it was a new word to me. I kind of had to read his book and have a dictionary, like, real close. Um, but he talked about Christ's livery. And I was like, livery? What are, we, what are we talking about here, friends? And it was Christ's servant's uniform. So back in the 1600s, servants wore the livery or the uniform, and everyone would know what estate you worked on according to your uniform. And he over and over again points to it is a privilege to wear Christ's livery, his, his servant's uniform. There is, there is a dignity within that. There is a joy. There is a privilege in that, even if it means it's soiled with disgrace. It is a privilege for us to wear it. So even as we walk through poverty, whether it be poverty of, of true financial poverty, whether it be poverty in other ways, are we willing to say, Lord, for your sake and your glory, glory I will gladly bear these things? So Paul was not only content in poverty, but also, see, he, was con he had contentment in prosperity, contentment in prosperity. He said, I know how to live in prosperity in every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled, having abundance. Now, Thomas Watson says, one would think it needless to press those to contentment whom God has blessed with great wealth, but rather we need to persuade them to be humble and thankful. But when they have great wealth, yet they are discontent that they do not have more. They want to make a hundred talents a thousand. Now, some of you might think, oh, Rachel, I'm good. I am not part of the whole prosperity part. The poverty part, that was totally me. But prosperity part, I'm just going to sit back and relax and let you talk because this isn't me. Well, something might help you think that through. So one statistic I've looked at said, if your family income is over 10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the global population. If you make over 50,000 or more a year, you make more than 99% of the world's population. So ladies, when we put it in that frame, we 
are prosperous. So even if we're living paycheck to paycheck, according to the world, we are very wealthy. But how do we think about wealth and the properties that we have been blessed with? Notice, and I want to be very careful with this, notice not one time is Paul insinuating that the having of wealth is inappropriate or ungodly or sinful. He is zeroing in on the heart. How do we think about what we have and what God has blessed us with? Ladies, are we continually pining for more? I always think of Rich Mullins. You know, people say they just want one thing, but really what they mean is they want one thing more. Now, I don't hear people walking around, especially at Grace, pining for vast amounts of wealth. I don't. Usually where we struggle is, we'll even say, I don't want the entire universe. I just want a remodeled bathroom. (laughs) Or I just want the peace of not worrying where the money's going to come from to pay the medical bills or just to pay my electric bill. I, I just... I just don't want to worry anymore. I, I don't want everything. I just want fill in the blank. I just want this, and then I'd be happy. I don't think we're all walking around wishing for a million dollars and sacrificing everything in life to get that million dollars. But what are we sacrificing to get what we want? It's really easy, and we love to compare. Well, I, I, I don't want what they want, or they're sacrificing this, and I'm not doing that, so therefore I'm okay. Instead of rooting out the discontent that is there, you know, on a base level, we think, oh, I, I'm thankful for what I have, but we're never truly satisfied. We just want just a little bit more. So the list goes on and on. Again, ladies, having things is not sinful, but worrying over things is. And worrying over how to get more is. Do we have that internally settled, quiet spirit that delights in whatever God has provided for us? Do we truly delight in, thank you, Lord, for my house? The food, again, 84, 99% of the world's population would love to have whatever right now we have in our pantries, even if we haven't gone in the grocery store for a while. We have more than enough. We are a blessed, blessed people. But even if all of that was taken away, would we be able to say, thank you, Lord, for your provisions? Now, how do we think about what we have? Paul was instructing Timothy and helping him think it through. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, he said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, 
storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So ladies, there's our marching orders. We are, most of us are in the 99th percentile. All of us, I I would assume, is in the 84th percentile. So we have prosperity. So we need to make sure, are we basing our security on the blessings that God has given us, or are we basing our security on the Lord himself, that he will provide what we need when we need it? Do we have that settled trust that if finances were to fail tomorrow, the Lord would see to it that you have what you need when you need it? And if he doesn't give you what we think we need, then it's better, a better lesson for us to not have it. We see that Paul suffered hunger and exposure more than once. Those were necessary lessons so that he could say he was content no matter what circumstance he was in. And he rejoiced in those things. Had he never experienced hunger, want, thirst, he could not say those things in all honesty. And yet he had. It is, is it a better lesson for our souls not to have even the things we deem necessary so that we can say, I have learned to be content no matter my circumstances. So we have seen this education in contentment. And now, in contrast to that, we are going to see number two on your outlines, the excuses for the lack of contentment. The excuses for the lack of contentment. Now, Thomas Watson laid out a number of excuses he had heard for why people struggle with their trust of the Lord and his plan and situations providentially brought into different Christians' lives. Sometimes we do limit the thought of discontentment only to the things we have, the material things, the things we own. But this list might help us just broaden that horizon a little bit more. Where is the discontentment? Where are those dark corners of the heart that we're hiding little places of discontentment in the ordering of our lives? And I was actually very surprised by his first one. So number one, the loss of a loved one. So these are excuses why people think it's okay to be discontent. The loss of a loved one. So he actually started with the loss of a child. And I was a little bit surprised by that, but then I looked it up. And in the 1600s, one out of every three children never made it past the age of 15. So they were very, they loved their children, but Many, many, many of them knew that loss personally. So, but for us in the modern era, praise God for modern medicine, which is a huge blessing. But we do know loss, do we not? And do we not struggle with yielding our will to God's will when he takes those who we love? 
So he had a couple thoughts to help us think through, okay, but how do I? Because he said, you do have to be sensible of these things, meaning these things are true. These are realities. He's not encouraging you to just be like, oh, well, no big deal. No, these are true sorrows of our hearts. But how do we walk through these difficult things in a content, God-honoring way? So he said, in our minds, in our hearts, we must be content not only when God gives, but when he takes away. We need to be able to echo Job's words when he lost all 10 of his children. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the second one that he He's helping us think through the second thought. He says, your loved one was not given, but lent. That loved one is the Lord's. He says, oh, Christian, be not discontented that you have parted with such a loved one, but rather rejoice that you had such a loved one to part with. Break forth into thankfulness. So he's encouraging us to focus more on the gratitude of being able to have had that person to love and weave that trust that God knew what was best for them and that we do not. So that we should be grateful for the time that we were given with that loved one. So just... Something to think through as we think through that, that loss of a loved one and that temptation to, to be at odds, almost to complain against God's plan, to complain against what God is doing. He also goes on to say the loss of financial security. The loss of financial security. He reminds us outward comforts do often quench inward heat. God can bestow a jewel. He can give a jewel to us, but we fall so in love with it that we forget the one who gave it. So riches can be thorns with the cares of this world. So he said, think of it this way. You, you did never so thrive in your spiritual trade. Your heart was never so humble as since when your condition was so low. You were never so poor in spirit, never so rich in faith. You never turned to the ways of God's commandments so fast as when some of your golden weights were taken off. So even as we do think of the material things of this world, it is helpful to think through when was the last time your prayers were so fervent? When you are looking at your bank account going, I have nothing there and the bills keep on coming. Does it not force you to your knees saying, Lord, it's only going to be you that we get out of this scrape. We're, Lord, we're in, we're in desperate need here. You know, was your discipline with your money so much better when things were super, super tight and you were more dependent on the Lord? Your attentions to the little blessings of the day and the little blessings the Lord wove in, was it more vibrant 
when they were far and few between. Those are things to think through, that financial security. And where is your heart resting? On the number that your bank account shows? Or on the eternal God who provides all things? C, going on. He said, sometimes our excuse is loss of peaceful relationships. Loss of peaceful relationships. You can say, Rach, material things really don't count for a lot for me. But where I wrestle and struggle, I struggle to trust, I struggle to see where is the good in this, is in my relationships with people. And this, this is, I'm going to read to you, this is his list. So this is 1600s. It shocks me how much times have changed and not changed at all. His first one was marriage. So he, he is bringing forth an example and he's talking as though he's talking through something with a wife. And the wife says, my husband makes bad decisions where I looked for honey, behold, a sting. So, but he encourages this wife. He says, the more profane the husband is, oft the more holy the wife grows. The more earthly he is, the more heavenly she grows. God sometimes makes the husband's sin a spur to the wife's grace. It is sad to have the living and the dead tied together, but do not let your heart fret with discontent. Mourn for his sin, but do not complain. So just something very, very needful when we're thinking through marriages and and the struggles they're in. Maybe your husband is not profane, but you struggle with the bad decisions he's making, and yet God is calling you to submit, and you've tried to talk to him, you've tried to bring scripture to bear, and he still wants to move forward with that decision. Are you going to trust the Lord that he can work through the situation and cheerfully yield to what your husband has decided. Again, if it's not sin, direct sin. But are you going to cheerfully yield? Are you going to grit your teeth and say, fine, do it your way? But on the inside, man, you are broiling. Is that a quiet, spirit-filled contentment that the Lord can take care of you no matter what the situation around you is. Something to think about. He said also, children, the pains of grief, which the mother has in a rebellious child, he said, are often worse than her pains of childbirth. But he also encourages, but use your child's rebellion as a sermon to yourself. You were a wayward child to your heavenly father, and yet he, in the tenderness of his heart, was faithful to us. He encourages, weep for your child, pray for him, but do not sin for him by discontent. 
So we can go to the Lord, absolutely. We can lament. We can weep for our child and pray for him. But we should not strive against the hand of the Lord. Sometimes it's friends. He, he said, he's had people tell him, my friends have dealt very unkindly with me and proved false to me. But he encourages, you have a friend in heaven that will never fail you, that sticks closer than a brother. Christ cares for you and is a faithful, compassionate friend. God is a friend forever. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So as we think through, don't let your joy be settled in your marriage, your children, your friends. Let it be centered around God. Maybe it's coworkers who mock us, who mock our Christianity and the very things we do hold dear. It is helpful to consider our Savior in those moments. So it can amaze us to think that he who is God could endure to be spit upon, to be crowned with thorns in a kind of jeer, And when he was ready to bow his head upon the cross to have the Jews in scorn wag their heads and say, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If men cannot give God a good word, should we be discontented or troubled that they speak badly about us? We should consider honestly that a badge of privilege especially if it's for Christ's sake. The world treated Christ poorly. We should not respond in anger when somebody mocks us, but be patient and kind. What did Christ say as he's going to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We should have that same response to others who mock and who, who he used the word reproach. So that's a accusatory with a mocking tone. So, so just those different relationships, we can be so tempted to be discouraged, but more discontent because we don't have the relationships we want. Sometimes D, our discontent, we excuse it because there's a loss of society's morality We get fretful and anxious and and discontent because we just see the world around us falling to pieces. And sometimes we see the wicked seem to be making out great here. Thomas Watson said, Do not let the prosperity of the wicked make you discontent. This is all the heaven they will ever have. Also, God mingles the wicked with the godly so that the godly may be a means to save the wicked. We are here to be an example, to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. So even as we see the wickedness around us on the rise, remember that is an opportunity for us to share Christ who has changed us. But if we are constantly up in arms and anxious and and not not just in a good frame of mind watching what's around us, if we're constantly anxious, if we're constantly just discontent in the, God, why are you letting this happen? 
then how are we to be a light of the gospel to those around us? If we're just being anxious like they're being anxious, how are they to see the power of the gospel within? Maybe E, you, you have an excuse of, well, I, I have a lack of gifts or talents that others do around me. A lack of gifts or talents. He said, maybe you say, I can't communicate theology like they can or pray with the elegancy that they do. He's, Thomas Watson said, a sanctified heart is better than a silver tongue. I think that's very good to remember. He said, prayer is more a matter of the heart than the head. So ladies, why do we envy each other's gifts and talents instead of rejoicing that God has gifted our friends and acquaintances? Why do we allow those things to intimidate us instead of being eager to learn from each person who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to build up his church? We are to be constantly learning from one another and strengthening each other as we learn to pray or as we fix those holes in theology that we often find. Sometimes we don't even know they're there until it's like, woo, gaping hole, wow, we need to fix that. But don't be intimidated. God has blessed our church with intelligent people. Let's rejoice in that instead of drawing away and being like, ooh, I can't be like that. Be like, no, 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 thank you, Lord, that you have given that person experience, intelligence, the, the wherewithal to be able to hold it all inside Instead of drawing away, we should press forward. Let me learn from that person, Lord. Let me learn to pray. And let me do it with humility. Even if I learn to use the pretty words. Let me never do it so that I sound good. Let me do it so that I bring you glory with my prayer life. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we are to grow in our grace and our knowledge. We don't draw away saying, oh, I can't do that. No, we press in so that we learn. Next, F. Maybe it's a lack of understanding of forgiveness. We have that disquiet in our hearts, that unsettledness. We are not settled in our trust of God because we don't have an understanding of his forgiveness. Thomas Watson said, discontent takes the heart wholly off of God and fixes it on the present trouble so that a man's mind is not on his prayer, but on his cross. And sometimes when our own, sin, our own sin is that constant cause of discontent, there are ways in which it feels right, but it may be wrong. What do I mean by that? When the sorrow for our sin drives us away from God rather than toward him for forgiveness, he says, when the soul has so many tears in its eyes that it cannot see Christ, there's a problem there. We can sometimes, ladies, our sorrow is so great. Should we sorrow over sin? Yes. I'm sure some of you are like, uh, Rach, we just did James 4, and it said to mourn and to weep and turn your laughter into gloom. What's going on? 
what is it pressing you towards? Is it pressing you towards repentance? Or are you just wallowing in your sorrow? There's the difference. Is it wrapped around self? Poor me. I can never get it right. I'm just never going to be able to do this Christian thing right. Or are we running to Christ, saying, Christ, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Please forgive this sin. Please work in my heart so that I will throw it away from me and put on your righteousness that I would think like you, that I would act like you. When we try to punish ourselves for our sin instead of embracing the forgiveness at the cross that sin's already been paid for in full. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sins, past, present, and future. So there is no wrath left for us. So do not let that lack of understanding of forgiveness that we allow that to to, um, upheave our, our hearts into distrust of the Lord and a distrust of his forgiveness that discontent of heart thinking, oh, I'll never have these things. We need to run to Christ in those, in those areas. Now we've seen the education in contentment and the excuses for the lack of contentment. And now we're going to look at the expressions of contentment. The expressions of contentment. If you go back to Philippians 4, verse 13, It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This poor verse seems to be one of the misimplied verses of all time in scripture. Ladies, this verse is not about winning a football game, but having contentment in all of life, even in afflictions. We can learn these things because we have Christ, and it is Christ who strengthens us. So A, we have the excellence of contentment. The excellence of contentment. Thomas Watson said, there is one promise that brings much sweet contentment into the soul. Psalm 3410, they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So if the thing we desire is good for us, we will have it. But if it is not good, then not having it is good for us. So we need to rest satisfied with the promise, and that brings contentment. Psalm 16, 5 and 6 says, The Lord is, my, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my light. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So with David, no matter where our lines fall in our life, we need to say this falls in pleasant places because we know the glory that is yet to come. I have an inheritance. I am looking forward to eternity. B, we also have the exercise of contentment. The exercise of contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So what does a content heart look like? The content heart is a silent heart. It does not have one word to say against God. 
Now, let me be very careful here. I am not saying you cannot go to God with your sorrows and pour out your heart to him. There is a great difference between complaining, not complaining, but pouring out your heart to God and complaining about God. So we want to keep our hearts from complaining. The content heart is a cheerful heart. That is something more than just patience, Thomas Watson says. A content Christian is more than passive. Just, oh, this is what life is, so this is what it's got to be. He does not only bear the cross, but he takes up the cross. He looks on God as a wise God and a loving God. He does not only submit to God's dealings, but rejoices in them. He does not only say, the Lord is just in all that has happened to me, but the Lord is good. Even as we're taking up the cross, can we say the Lord is good? The content heart is also a thankful heart. Are we continually saying in everything, giving thanks for this is God's will for me in Christ Jesus? A little paraphrase there. The content heart is a humble heart. I loved what he said here. A contented Christian being sweetly captivated under the authority of the word desires to be holy at God's disposal and is willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set him. He does not go to choose his cross, but lets God choose for him. He is content both in the kind of cross and the duration of the cross. A content heart says, let God apply what medicine he pleases and let it lay on as long as it will. I know when it has done its cure and eaten the venom of sin out of my heart, God will take it off again. So just that trust that there's medicine. I know God is doing this for my good and he will let it for as long as I need to eat that venom of sin out of my heart. And then a content heart is a prayerfully meditative heart, meditating on the glory that will be revealed. And I just want to leave you with one more verse from Philippians 4. It's verse 19. Paul tells the Philippians and us today, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you, that we can trust your plans and your dealings with us. Lord, as we walk the path of this life, I pray that you would weave in us just that quiet spirit that cheerfully submits to your will. That as we have our sorrows, as we have the storms around us raging, that we would sing a song of thankfulness in our hearts to you, knowing that there will be glory in the end. That our entire beings, Lord, help us intentionally focus on the things that are hard now 
are for our good, that you are wise and that you are good and you would only do these things because you are a a loving heavenly father and that you will bring forth your glory even from simple little lives like ours. So Lord, as we talk together, as we walk together, might we be women content to let you do with us as you wish. It's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.